welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast with my special guest today, Hillary Rail. Say hello, everybody, Hillary. Hi. Hi, everyone. Did I say your last name right? You did, perfectly. Okay, good, because I knew Hillary before she was a Rail. I knew Hillary when she was a Whelan. <laughs> Hillary and I go back a few years. So before I get into it, full disclosure, Hillary and I have known each other since we were half people as eggs. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> because our mothers were very close friends since they were 12 years old. And not only do Hillary and I have parents who uh, love each other very much, but we share a birthday too, <laughs> which I always thought was super neat and probably a sign that we were sort of time-shifted twins that kind of accidentally landed in different mothers, but they were so close that we didn't, we couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> and, so, and so similar too. <laughs> oh my gosh, really, really. So, uh, okay, uh, I'm a little discombobulated, everybody, because I'm so excited to be talking to Hillary, but Hillary wrote a wonderful book called Kids Like Us, and I want to, again, full disclosure to everybody, Hillary does not identify as autistic. Hillary identifies as holistic, and so we're going to talk more about the book. We'll have, uh, and I'll have links to that on the website and everything else and the publishers. It's on everywhere you might find a book, Kids Like Us. So, Hillary. Um, how long have you known that you're holistic? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, when I was little, I always felt, I, I never felt autistic and I, and I, and I, and I still don't, uh -huh. but, um, but I definitely always felt like I was on the outside looking in. And that everybody else knew what was going on and I didn't. Mm. Um, so I definitely always had the sense. I just I have an image of myself sitting in a tree watching everybody play and sort of trying to figure out how they were doing it and how they were getting along. Mm -hmm. um, so even though I think I might have found out I was holistic later in life, <laughs> but I didn't, have the, I didn't have the words for it at all at all but I but I think maybe I felt um like somebody who thought much more differently from other people when I was a kid and then I slowly learned how to communicate but it wasn't completely natural and I think that's why I have a daughter who's on the spectrum and I think that's why I could quickly see that there was something very different about the way that that she was thinking but that it was stronger than what I had experienced as a kid if that makes sense and do you have an official holistic diagnosis <laughs> do you do this to everybody <laughs> Am I your first holistic victim? Um, that's <laughs> so funny. Um, you know what? I have been told, actually, that I am a very... Um, that's so funny. No. <laughs> Simple answer. No. <laughs> I don't, but but now, but now that I'm, but it's funny that you ask that because now that I'm in this world where I've written this book with an autistic protagonist, and I am becoming friends and having discussions with autistic bloggers, mm -hmm. and they're amazing, and there's this whole world, and I sort of feel a little bit self-conscious about like my being a bit of an outsider in their world and kind of a freak um and so it's given me a teeny bit of insight <laughs> well, <laughs> i saw i saw um yeah. steve dude steve silberman who wrote neurotribes i saw him speak once and he talks about going to a conference of autistic people and he's like you know i'm gay i'm obese like i've always felt like 
some kind of outsider, but I'd never felt like more of an outsider than when I went to this conference as an holistic man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I don't, I, I don't know, <laughs> but I don't have a diagnosis. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, those are <sighs> questions that I ask, you know, all my autistic guests and they, mm-hmm. those are questions that autistics get asked all the time. And you know, obviously the point I'm making is that we just have to figure out who the heck we are. Right. And I don't have an official diagnosis for anything. I just identify so strongly with all these stories that I'm hearing people talk about that, you know, and I've talked about this a lot in the podcast as to why I'm self-diagnosed and you know, basically it boils down to that when you're 58 years old, you, <laughs> you know yourself, <laughs> you know yourself, you recognize yourself. And I also am fortunate in that I literally have nothing to lose by openly identifying as autistic. And I don't have anything to prove to anyone. I have supportive partner and supportive child. And so there isn't any need for me to go, look, look, see, the official person said right here that I'm autistic. So I haven't needed to go down that path and haven't really wanted to go down that path. Oh, you haven't explicitly, you haven't wanted to. Yeah, I explicitly have not, have chosen not to. And there are reasons not to get yourself diagnosed as autistic right now, unfortunately. Uh, But we won't go into those now because we've talked about that on another podcast. But basically, you can be discriminated against, right? uh, particularly if you want to adopt or donate sperm or be a surrogate mother, anything like that. Right. Uh, Custody battles, that kind of thing. Okay, so Hillary and I have known each other for so long. And Hillary, do you mind how old are you? I'm 52. You're 52 and I'm mm-hmm. 58. That's nothing, right? right. Not, any, not anymore. It seemed huge when we were little <laughs> or when I was little. <laughs> when I was little too, it was this huge difference. You were one of the little kids and, you know, I, I got to see uh, baby pictures of Hillary when we were both growing up. Our mothers, they grew up together in Los Angeles, but during the time that Hillary and I were growing up, Uh, My family moved around a lot, and Hillary and her family pretty much stayed in the Los Angeles area, and eventually uh, my mother and myself and my sister all moved back to Los Angeles, and after Hillary's parents moved out of this really gorgeous apartment in Hollywood, they got us in there, and so we got to live in your old apartment for years it was beautiful um one of those gorgeous like uh craftsman stucco things it's probably or torn down do you remember that place yes i totally i moved out when i was seven i I totally remember it yeah when you were seven you were an amazing kid and i just remember every time seeing you just kind of beaming with pride like yeah that's my february 5th Sister, sister. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, your mom. When we so then, okay, I'm jumping ahead here. So then, uh, Hillary's mom, Harriet, started the Area E Alternative School, which was one of the very, I think, if not the first charter school in California. And she started it because she was very concerned that schools were too segregated, and she wanted to make a magnet charter school where kids of all different colors would come together and be together and learn from each other. And that school was kindergarten through 12th grade. And what a lifesaver, Hillary. Oh my gosh. Did you know that there was a lottery to get in at the beginning? I did not. I just miraculously was there one day. I didn't know. I, I was, your mother did so much work. I'm sure that right. your mother having started the school, I'm sure that, that you got in no matter what. But I was in the lottery and I got in, which like I almost never win lotteries. or anything. <laughs> was like, And I was so, so happy. And so we moved to Los Angeles so that I could go to Area E Alternative School. 
And it was. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. And it was a lifesaver just because your mom had designed it. And it was an amazing school. Not only that, Hillary, I would not even be alive if it wasn't for your mother. Because really? <laughs> really. Because it was your mother that, that told my mother to go to the University of Chicago. And it was your mom that told my mom that she should talk to my dad. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I owe my whole mom left University of Chicago because she was so cold and your poor mother went there all by herself. <laughs> she ended up going there all by herself, which kind of upset her, but, you know, right. she was all right. And then and right. she had a bunch of other, they made a bunch of friends. And one of them was my dad. And I don't know, you know. And here mom, you are. <laughs> here I am. Your mom may have regretted and you know, <laughs> introducing them to each other later. I don't know. But, um yeah, here I am, and it's all thanks to your mom. And, oh, and she's she's my fairy godmother, as far no. as I'm concerned. Which I know might might have slightly annoyed her in the past because she is a staunch atheist. And right, <laughs> is that nonsense? But she's still my fairy godmother. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she just sort of goes about doing the right thing in a very matter-of-fact way, my mom. There's no, there are no bells and whistles. She's not very into to sort of emotional or demonstrative. No. Demonstrative she, stuff. She's funny. She She's very direct. Um, she's very direct and very down-to-earth. Very and, much. And so. very, not, 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 not exactly self-effacing, but just sort of not interested in drawing attention to herself. We would connect talking about things like art. Oh, yeah. She she loved to talk about art and books. I think that's why she loved your mom so much. Yeah, they definitely have, have those interests in common and passed those along to us, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> and, you, moms. <laughs> yeah, and here we are. It's just so freaking amazing. So And so then we were in the same school together for a long time. Well, it felt like a long time to us, and Hillary was a little kid because she was six years younger than me. So, you know, I think I started that school when I was 12, and so you would have been five or six. I, I, was, I think I was seven. I think. You were seven when you started? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. I was six. You're right. I was six. I was six. I started in first grade. I was six. You're right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so, yeah, we didn't hang out together that much but I was always kind of keeping an eye out and you and you said hi to me on the bus yeah that was really cool (laughs) (laughs) that was really cool (laughs) thank you (laughs) when I was was feeling like an outsider in my tree not knowing what was going on at least I had an older friend who was nice to me (laughs) oh (laughs) oh gosh just so long ago think what a different world that our kids grew up in yeah you know and this was Hollywood in the 70s and it was kind of a crazy place I I can't even imagine if there were pictures of me from there, <laughs> <laughs> see, I was—I I had no—I was just totally this clueless little kid. I had no idea that yeah, <laughs> you, were living, you were living a very much different and much more appropriately sheltered. Right. <laughs> I should have been sheltered better too, but here I am. So, you know, I—I I have a lot of interesting stories to tell as a result. Whew. So. Huh. Then Hillary and I, we see each other sometimes for like funerals, right? <laughs> Random potluck dinners, like every ten years or so. Right. It's been at least ten years. At least, yeah. I think the last time I saw you was when Mimi died. Oh wow. Okay. Well, that would no that that was only seven. That was about eight years ago. Eight years ago, or nine, maybe. Was it when your dad passed? Is that? Maybe that's when. Well, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah, that was like 20, over 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm not even sure I had the same husband at that point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, 
but your father, Tim, just an amazing, brilliant human being. And he had a throat operation that left him unable to speak. And he spoke in kind of a whisper. And it could be really difficult to understand him sometimes, which I know is incredibly frustrating for him. And he carried around a pad of paper and a pencil so that he could write things down. Or if he had one of his handy daughters present, (laughs) (laughs) then I remember you translating for us quite a bit. Yeah, I was, I was, my sister and my, and my mom and I were, were his voice. We were pretty, we were pretty symbiotic. We had a great, yeah, great relationship. Yeah, he was, he was amazing. And he always addressed me as if he was talking to a reasonably intelligent adult. He never talked down to me. And we had some really amazing, interesting conversations about stuff that I I don't remember at all. But uh, he was a little scary just because he was so tall. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, he wasn't that. He was only six feet tall, but he he just seemed really tall. I felt like he loomed over (laughs) me. (laughs) But he was, you know, just the sweetest, kindest man in the world. So let's talk about your book that made me cry. (laughs) I'm really glad. Your mom really liked it too, which made me so happy because you're both such deep readers. We are addicted to reading. That's absolutely (laughs) true. And I have to admit, Hillary, I was a little worried because it's always scary when you read somebody's, like a friend's book. Right. Oh, I know. Believe me. <laughs> okay, good. Because I'm like, oh, God, I hope I like it. I hope I like it. I hope I like it. And, right. you know, at first, um, the protagonist is Martin. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into the parts of the plot that are safe to reveal in, in a minute. But when I was first reading, I was like, I'm not autistic this way at all. You know, I, I felt like, okay, maybe some people are autistic this way, but this doesn't speak to me in terms of autism. But as the book progressed and as Martin had more adventures and interacted with things, then I began to really see more and more things like, oh, well, yeah, I do that. Oh, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. (laughs) And we're all so different. We're just all so incredibly different. So I want to encourage my readers, if you get into the first few pages and you're like, oh, this, you know, this doesn't really necessarily sit with me as an autistic, just remember we're all different. And I guarantee as you go deeper and deeper into the book that you will definitely find things where you go, oh, that's me. That's me. How did she know? How did she know to write that? That's me. One of the things that happens in the book, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, is that one of the characters who has a beard, shaves it off. And this freaks Martin out. And when my husband and I were first together, mm-hmm. he had a beard and he started shaving it off. And, and all of a sudden he was somebody else. And it was the weirdest feeling. I, I mean, just absolutely bizarre. So I really got Martin in that moment. And there were also other, lots of other little moments. Uh, Martin imprints on a different book than I do. And would you tell us about that book? Because I'm afraid I'll mispronounce it. Yeah. Well, so um, just one thing that I wanted to say, because I think your point is so interesting, is that when I talk with other writers and other kids and also sort of the world of um, autistic bloggers who want to talk about my book. One of the reasons that the book works, um, I think, is that, and and that books that work that do a good job of of autistic representation is because the characters are specific people. 
they're not they're not templates they're not representations of certain traits and they might have certain autistic traits but and martin has many like repetitive comforting behaviors and but he also has stuff that he's that that set him completely apart that are totally specific to his personality mm-hmm. um and so so i think that it's 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 you've got you've got to create complete characters and and you know if you've met one autistic person you've met one autistic person so and I think that I I felt I knew really strongly who he was Mm -hmm. and he wasn't he wasn't a type he was he was Martin he was himself and so I think that that's why people can relate to him and I think that that's why at least as far as I know no one's been upset that an holistic person wrote about an autistic character because it's it's about empathy. It's about trying to imagine what it's like mm-hmm. to be someone else. And the way that I got the idea for him to have um, a book as his sort of way to frame the world mm-hmm. was that um, when my daughter was younger, she did a lot of what's called, I'm sure you guys know, it's called scripting. Mm-hmm. And she would memorize um, songs and um, books and all kinds of material. And at first she would just kind of say it in this very like melodious sing song. It was almost musical. It didn't really have a sense. Mm-hmm. She had a fantastic memory and really good intonation. And she would just repeat stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool, but, but, but then what was even cooler was when she started using these phrases um, intelligently to describe the world. Mm-hmm. Like we would, when there was a book she loved about a little French boy who goes to the pool with his grandpa mm-hmm. and his grandpa says, be careful, choopy, it's slippery. And one time we went out on a snowy day and she looks at me and goes, be careful, choopy, it's slippery. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God. You get, so I, I thought like, it's amazing. Like she's trying, most people just learn language totally intuitively communicate almost like it's almost stupid. Like we just do it. We don't even have to think about it. She had to memorize all these phrases, figure out what they meant, try to use them. It was such a sort of Herculean Herculean and sort of conscious effort and so hard and also just so beautiful and poetic and cool and different. I just thought like, that's amazing. I want to write about that Mm -hmm. Um, as like a literary phenomenon. It's so cool. And then I started reading, there's um, Ron Susskind um, wrote a a journalist, wrote a book about his son who learned to speak from Disney movies Mm -hmm. and he would just watch them and repeat in the same way, nonsensically is, phrases from the movies and then one day he was like and he never spoken a quote-unquote original word and then one day when he was like nine or ten his brother had a birthday party um and was really sad afterwards and his parents were trying to figure out why and this kid goes he's like peter pan he doesn't want to grow up and they and the parents were like oh oh my goodness (laughs) like yeah you understand you got it and then he just exploded into using Disney to describe his world so I just thought like what a cool beautiful thing to Mm -hmm. have a framework that's that's um and some kids have train schedules some kids I know a guy who's brilliant who has soap operas you know there's like Mm -hmm. all different all different stuff and so I got the idea I personally I've have a degree in French literature. I love French literature. And my favorite novel is Marcel Proust's um, In Search of Lost Time. And the first volume of that called Swan's Way is starts off with a man trying to recapture his past. Mm-hmm. And he wants to write about it. And he wants to write about it. And he can't figure out how. And then at some point, he, he goes back to an, an old, visit an old aunt and she gives him a madeleine cookie and a cup of tea which is something he ate when he was a kid and tasting that and drinking the tea sort of sets off this whole sensual um almost involuntary memory of his past and he's able to recapture everything so that's kind of it in a nutshell and then it goes on for like thousands of pages about his whole life and it's the most (laughs) and it's the most beautiful book and it describes um in great detail social interactions Mm. and like class structure and human relationships and love and longing and lo- like 
it's a book about everything. And so basically, um, Martin uses this first volume as like his, which his dad, whose French has given him, and they've read it together and they've totally connected over it as his way um, to see the world. Um, and, and sometimes he takes it too literally and he doesn't always, but that's okay. It's really beautiful. Um, and so, so that's, that's sort of the premise of the book. And then he's, he's for the, as the book opens, he's on a train going through the French countryside with his mom and his sister, his mom's a movie director and she's about to shoot a historical epic in the French countryside. So Martin and his sister and mom are going to spend two months together in France. It's the first time he's ever actually been there even though he's fluent and he's mm-hmm. like obsessed with so it. Sure. Obsessed with it. Special so interest, he's, yeah. so, he's so excited. He's like, my, it's, exactly. It's like his special interest is going to come to life. Mm-hmm. Like he is going to live out this book. Mm-hmm. So he's really excited about that. And then he's also really nervous because for the first time in his life, he's going to go to just the local public high school and not be in a, in a special school mm-hmm. so where he's sort of been in LA with like lots of therapy and lots of support and other kids who are like him and mm-hmm. also have special interests. So suddenly he's going to be thrown into this new world and he's kind of excited and he's kind of like, am I going to change? Do I want to change? So that he's asking himself a ton of questions and then he's got this book that sort of nurtures him and teaches him how to see the world. And I think one of the things that I've learned or, and thought about a lot is that the stereotype of a special interest is that it's isolating hmm. and, that it, and that it makes people think like autistic special interests, like they, the, all they do is like focus on that one thing and that they can't connect with other people because they're so closed into their own special world. Right. And I actually think it's the opposite that if you, if the world will connect with them through their special interests. They can connect like deeper and harder than almost anyone. <laughs> you know, it's like, you, but, no, I right. Think, I, I agree. And I, I think that, I mean, honestly, that whole concept is kind of odd to me because people who get excited by football or game right. Right. or, you know, political elections, Right. <laughs> they get really excited about them. Right. They're allowed to have a special interest. <laughs> they're allowed to have a special interest. The difference is that they're only allowed to be enthusiastic about it at big rallies or something. Whereas right. people who are autistic and have a special interest, we can get just as excited sitting at our computer in our living room. We don't need to go right. to the rally. We're just as happy by ourselves. And certainly my kind of dominant special interest if you know if you don't consider art which I mean it's a special interest I think of it more as a special activity really but mm-hmm. <laughs> right. but Shakespeare you know I saw Shakespeare when I was five years old at the University of Chicago where I was because your mother sent my <laughs> <laughs> and it imprinted on me and I was reading Shakespeare very young because I was reading very young. Right. I never had that trouble with language. I mean, and heaven help me if I had gone around talking like Shakespeare. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But so you never had trouble communicating or or connecting when you were a kid. No. Well, I connecting is a different thing. I've always been hyperlexic. I've always been hyperverbal. I've always right. been hyperphantasic. So I've always had all these pictures in my head. I've always had a lot of words to say, a lot of ideas and thoughts to share, and wanting to know what other people's ideas and thoughts and dreams were. Unfortunately, a lot of the times, the things that I was interested in were not the same things that my peers were interested in. And so in mm-hmm. that sense, it was isolating. Right. If I had been in England with a Shakespeare fixation, my life would look very different. <laughs> right. You know, they would have said, oh, you know, this little girl's been obsessed with Shakespeare since right. five years old. Let's make her a professor. Her- I mean, I really, I really do think so much of it is about your surroundings and, and how, and how people take you literally. It's like that, that's amazing Swedish kid, Greta Thunberg. Yes. And, 
you know, she's autistic and she's like, climate change is my special interest. And, but thank God she has parents who are into that and let her strike. And she, then people rallied around her and she got, you know, she's got a million kids to walk out of school. (laughs) She's nominated for the Nobel prize. But, but it's, she, she's, she's amazing, but she will say like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, you, you know, you can look at me and say autism is a gift, but for most people, it's a battle at school. It's a battle at work. It's a battle against bullying. So it's really, you know, she's, she's the first to admit that she's very lucky in the way she's been accepted. Well, yes. And yet what I see is that she's getting bullied now. She's getting bullied online. She's getting bullied for being autistic. She's getting bullied for her special interests. But it's at a global scale. But people think she's so wonderful. Is she, is she getting a lot of bad yes. backlash? I haven't. It's yeah. awful. Yeah, it's awful. Aww. It's awful. I know. I just, I, I, I'm not even I just assume that I, everybody. I those people. <laughs> I just can't imagine anybody not loving her. Right? I agree. Right. I agree. And yet, yeah, she is definitely getting attacked. And it's all the same things that people have used to attack me as well. So I really feel for her. And I think she's in a very difficult position. And I'm often worried about her, to be honest. It's huge, huge pressure that she's under. But I love her. I support her. I'm so thankful (laughs) she exists. But at another end of the spectrum, there's Bill Gates. Right. (laughs) While autistic men can suffer from being attacked, something that a man does that puts a lot of focus into, oh, look, he's so dedicated. A woman does the same thing, then she's obsessed. Uh, right. <laughs> a, a teenage boy of color does the same thing, and he's scary. You know, right. it, all those stereotypes still seem to apply. And so intersectionalism is kind of, you know, it's a big deal in the autism community. Right. And that's—I know you address that in the book, where Martin and his friends in Los Angeles, really interesting autistic characters, very different from Martin. They feel right. very authentic in themselves. I definitely feel like I have met those kids or could meet those kids, and they talk about their feelings of privilege in the book. And so I saw that that was addressed, and I appreciated that. That was good. Thank Something you. else that. I noticed was that every character is a whole person. Even the smallest character, even the guy who sells, or the two people, I guess, who sell Martin his Madelines. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're real In people. The, baker. yeah. the, the bakers are real people. And then Martin has some very caring family members and I cared just as much about his older sister's life and travails and triumphs and his mother as I did about him, as well as the kids that he connects with at the French school. So well done, Hillary. Thank you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Right? Such complete characters and little delicate bits of nuance about relationships and how to break up with somebody and (laughs) all of these extra little things that for me built this whole world around Martin so that it made him feel very complete, like a complete person. Right. So well done, Hillary. I'm so proud. Thank you. you. (laughs) I'm so, I'm so thrilled. And the ending people, the ending is fantastic and I, 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 I really not, like the ending <laughs> you should no spoilers I like not give it away but yeah. I will just say that if you are somebody for whom a sad or overly dramatic ending will make you throw a book across the room you will not do that you will take that book <laughs> and you will hug it close and you will cry and you will say thank you Hillary for oh, perfect thank you ending. Rachel I mean, I, I really, I really wanted to write, or I mean, just part of it uh-huh. just came out, but I, I wanted, I, I don't, I, 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 I don't like books where, with 
with sort of extraneous characters. I feel like everybody is whole and everybody has an inner life. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you have as rich of an inner life as Martin does, mm -hmm. that I, you would, you would never assume that everyone doesn't have an inner life. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it's that, that he's sort of, despite appearances sometimes, he just has a lot of empathy, you know? Oh, yes, yes. And um, autistics do tend to be highly empathic. Yeah. It's just that we don't always express it in the same way that holistic people expect it to be expressed. So we understand when we're expressing it to each other. It's right. very clear. But we don't always use exactly the scripted words that holistic like in that situation. Now, from my perspective as an autistic person, holistics use scripts all the time. Hello, how are you? I am fine. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the weather is lovely today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I went fishing last weekend. So we sound like it. We sound like a talk. We sound like automatons to you, right? Well, it's just small talk. It's so scripted. So right. It's true. It's really true. It's so funny. And Martin and Martin sort of gets at that a little bit when he's like, I mean, you see him kind of learning mm -hmm. how to do it, and he's kind of he's, you know, he's not necessarily above it, but he's just like, okay. I guess I can do this. Yeah, exactly. It's like, all right, that's really, that's really all you want. It kind of feels, it feels very surface. And I always felt like it was kind of rude to sort of treat people like a, a character, like a non-playing character in a video game that the computer right, yeah. spit up, you know. But the reality is that that's the kind of interactions that a lot of people are comfortable with. So, right. Where I will get into trouble is if I go to a restaurant and the waiter is, you know, their whole job is to be personable. So they're hoping that they get a tip. But, you know, my silly autistic butt is like, oh, you know, how are you doing? Do you like your job? You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, you know, you guys get to wear cool aprons. Like I'm totally engaging them. Right, right, right. In a meaningful conversation, they just want to get my order and get away. <laughs> really all they care about. But sometimes I will look into a wait person's eyes or a retail clerk, and I will see sadness or desperation or just loneliness. You know, right. you look at this person, you go, wow, they, this is a shit job. They hate this job. Then they have to go home to their shit roommate. Right. You know, their boyfriend didn't text back since last night, and they don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I just so want to reach out and comfort that person. And so that, that is, that's complete empathy. <laughs> it's almost a really intense form of empathy, which I think sometimes is a little hard to bear, yeah. which might be why people can seem sort of, autistic people can seem sort of stilted because it's sort of this unbearable empathy yes it's like when a light is too bright you have yeah. to close your eyes so right. and also we're aware from past experience that bringing up somebody's difficult feelings that they're trying to hide just to get through the day right isn't necessarily what they so, want in that right. situation and, and that's the thing they <laughs> it's not always you know I just had to learn that that's their private feelings. Right. And that just because they're hurting, like I am not do 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 empathy super fairy. Right. <laughs> there's probably nothing I can do, number one. Right. And so the absolute best thing I can do is leave a fat tip. Like that's the best <laughs> thing I can do. So, <laughs> so And I'm sure you do. I do. I do now. Now that I understand how that exchange right. works, yeah, yeah. But I think I think the inner one of the other things I really wanted to explore in the book is sort of the inner the interaction between the holistic and the autistic, and sort of the the in the love story, like bridging that neurological gap, but also in his relationship with his mom and his sister, mm -hmm. and how they sort of they have to figure out because. I have this with my own daughter, like 
I really want her to be happy. And Martin's mom really wants him to be happy. And she loves him desperately. Mm-hmm. But her, but her idea of happiness isn't always his idea of happiness. Just like you're saying, your idea of empathy isn't always the waiter's idea of empathy. So it's, it's like, waiter, it's well, they did not hire me to be their empathy. To be their empathy. <laughs> so I, I just think that sometimes you, 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 tr- and I think that those empathy has limits. And I think that that's something, and you're constantly bumping up against them. And I think you have to, but I think you have to just keep trying to figure out how somebody might feel. And it's like, it's like a, especially as a parent, it's really like being on a tightrope because you you don't want, your kid doesn't want to be isolated. So you have to kind of help them have the tools not to be isolated if they don't want to be isolated, but you also have to make sure you step back and let them be themselves. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's never totally clear and it's never static. Mm -hmm. It's always a balancing act. And so I, I wanted to sort of give the feeling of that dance between them where they're all incredibly Mm well-intentioned and yet they can't always find it. And the best they can do is just try to understand each other. And I think that's what we have, we all have to do in the world is just, try you're never going to have absolutely. a perfect understanding absolutely. like I'm, and even between two autistic people right so you know i realized that i'm autistic and in talking and thinking about several of my family members and again to any of my family members listening if you think that you're not autistic i totally believe you i'm not <laughs> I'm just saying that it runs in families. And in discussing these things with my mother, she said, yeah, you know, that she could see that she had quite a few of those traits. We misunderstand each other right. regularly, you know. Um, I have, but right. I, I can say that autistic parents who have autistic children that have been diagnosed, they also struggle. It's not like, being autistic means that you can instantly understand your autistic children because we're so freaking different. It's like being, I, I have two holistic children and mm-hmm. they're, they're extremely mysterious. You know? Yes, exactly. They're extremely yeah. mysterious. So yeah. you know, if I had had an autistic child who did echolalic speech, I would not have known what to do. Yeah, and I, right. It would have been a complete mystery to me because the way I'm autistic is so. So different, yeah. Different. That's so interesting. The way that. Was my, my whole experience of autism is echolalic speech because that's what I dealt with. Because that's right. what you dealt with. Yeah. But right. you know yeah. what I realized that I do? I do echolalic art. Well, that's cool. <laughs> what do you mean by it? what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, so I've always been obsessed with drawing faces, uh-huh. and I didn't know whose faces they were. I just thought they were faces out of my head. And it took years, 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 years. Not until I was in grad school in my late forties mm-hmm. that I realized that I was drawing the face of somebody who I had just passed in the hall. Oh, that's so interesting. And then I looked back through all my sketches and I went, oh, that's that. Oh, that's that person. Oh, oh, oh. And that's what my Becalalia does. It's interesting, though, because it's at least a lot of, at least with my daughter, Iris, it's, she's, she's so quick with it now Mm -hmm. that she still, she does it a lot, but she all, but she, weaves it into her regular speech, but she still echoes all the time. But when she was a baby, it was, it was, it was just totally, it was a little bit unnerving. How bad. It was a little unnerving because we didn't know. Right. If she knew what she was saying. Well, at first when she was tiny, we just thought she was a freaky genius because she could memorize anything. (laughs) And, and her intonation was so good that it sounded like she knew what she was saying. Right. Um, but then she started to, to be, she sort of just went, she started trying, she started learning how to attribute meaning to what she was echoing. And it just went backward. It was like this different, totally different way of learning. Mm. That, as I said, I just thought I got a huge amount of 
admiration for. Um, well, and it must know. have been really shocking at first. I, I really feel for you in that situation because we come from such a verbal Verbal, yeah, it's true. Culture. If I'm right, talking about right, the right, culture yeah. of your family and mine, and right. the small group of friends that we're right. growing up, and now, yeah, and now she's highly verbal. I mean, she's obsessed with, she's obsessed with Harry Potter now, and has whole, you know, the whole thing memorized, and like, you know, she's very, but in a very different way from how I would. It. She's very into the specifics of it very into the facts, who's in what house, how Quidditch is played. She knows all uh-huh. the rules. Uh-huh. Like she knows all that stuff. She's not nearly as interested in the emotional relationships between the characters. Well, yeah. that's fair it because is. those are totally dumb. Is. Those are dumb, yeah. those emotional Here. relationships. Here. Here. <laughs> never forgive her for putting Hermione with, what's his name, Ron. Oh, with Ron. Yeah, we, we have, we're only in book, we have, we're only in book four. What a tweet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I just can't see any chemistry but between them. You're so funny. Anyway. (laughs) But I did when I, when I realized that I had a child who was, you know, quote unquote disabled, I started thinking a lot about just the disability movement in general Mm -hmm. and about my dad who like I had never thought of as disabled when I was growing up Mm -hmm. then one time when I was in high school I think it was in high school he was when Jesse Jackson was running for president um and he came back from this rally and he he was so excited and he was like I just went to a rally that was Jesse Jackson and it was a rally for the disabled and he said we weren't disabled we were specially abled and I said dad what are you talking about you're not disabled Mm -hmm. and he goes course I'm disabled (laughs) and you know he he couldn't speak he had a tracheotomy that throat cancer like he he was in in regular terms disabled that it just I just it never even occurred to me to think of him that way right but then I also thought I also saw how proud he was and how excited he was to be part of this community of other disabled people and just my whole world kind of exploded I thought, wow, like, okay, I just figured out you're disabled. And at the same time, I just figured out that that's not a tragedy. (laughs) Yeah. And so just figure, just having that consciousness, I think, Mm -hmm. with Iris, even though she's disabled in a completely different way, but that sort of community that of people who are different in all kinds of ways I I just feel could be could be really beautiful if we if we let it be beautiful and I just and I always think of my dad's reaction Mm -hmm. to that rally and to feeling like he was part of this big beautiful movement Mm -hmm. Um, so so I I feel like in some ways yes it's scary but just know that somebody's gonna maybe need help their whole life but it's also like it's also just that that's we 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 all need to support each other and and sort of embrace that difference. <laughs> I'm sort of I'm losing I'm losing my words. Sorry. No, I, 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 and, yeah. and I'm letting you go on because I don't want right. to talk over you. I think that particularly in the United States, we glorify the individual. Right. We glorify the idea of being independent and supporting yourself independently. When the reality is that none of us are independent. We're, all, we're completely interconnected. We're yeah. completely interconnected. Yeah, I, right, right. I think, yeah, an awful lot is made of living independently when it's right, really right. something none of us do. Right. <laughs> and I, well, I understand that many of the traits that can come along with autism that some of us have can be very difficult. I'm really struggling with autistic burnout right now. And that's something that just gets more difficult as you age. And you're just tired. You're just tired. And you have to rest. You have to lie down. I went through a phase a while ago where, and, you know, a bunch of stuff had happened. I 
I got burnout and I slept for 14 hours a day for about six months. You probably needed to. Apparently I did. And that was a form of autistic burnout. I'm going through something similar now. It's not, thank goodness, not 14 hours a day. But from the beginning of November to the end of March, I I was just kind of stuck in bed. So that for me has been the biggest liability. That, well, there's three things. There's the burnout. There's an inability to handle fluorescent lights. And the social rejection, because I've never masked, I've never tried to fit in that way. I've just always kind of gone in and gone. Okay. I know a couple of writers who were um, sort of found out they were autistic through their writing, started writing about autism and then figured out as they were writing that they themselves Mm -hmm. were, and they're women and they've been masking their whole lives. And it's, they're really exhausted from that. So I was, when you said autistic burnout, my first thought was, has she, have you been masking? Well, and but this no. is something where I, I think the community may be wrong about this. I, uh-huh. I think that stress causes burnout. Yeah. I think masking causes stress. Okay. So yeah. I, but I also think that all kinds of things cause stress, like getting right. and, yeah, you know, not making it to your doctor's appointment on time. Right, there are lot, there are lots of there are lots of factors that can freak you out. You're right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And but I think honestly, I think the biggest factor is age, and oh. that as I've aged, and particularly after fifty five, I noticed a huge difference in right. my energy level. And again, this is not everyone. This is the way I'm experiencing. Right burnout and the way I'm experiencing autism. And I think it's a really good idea to have autistics be comfortable enough that they don't feel that they have to mask. I, I'm all for that. And so I don't go around telling people not to tell people not to mask. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Because I, I've always been out there. I've always been kind of proud of being a nonconformist. I, I knew I was suffering because of it, but I just thought that these lots of lots of nonconformists suffer. <laughs> exactly. I'm an artist, yeah. you know, so right. I didn't feel like I was supposed to conform. I, I right. was supposed to challenge the social norms. Right. So I would just say to people that, you know, I think it's really good not to mask, but it's also not the be all end all in right. terms of burnout. Well, this, the stereotype of the, the non-empathic and the sort of mm-hmm. willfully isolated autistic person is so, is so damaging, I think. And f- yeah, and the flat mm-hmm. affect and the idea yeah. that they're, good at, they're only good at math. Um, right. You know. And they're only good at STEM. Yeah, there's some, there's some great stuff coming out about, which makes me really happy about um, about autis- autistic people who read novels and and love them and, and can understand plots. <laughs> like, there's millions of us, Hillary. Millions. <laughs> we've always been here. We've always been writing novels. We've always been reading novels. Uh, Simon Baron Cohen has a lot to answer for, frankly. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I think that's being debunked. But, Gosh, I sure hope so. But it's taking but it's taking a while because it's a pretty persistent stereotype. But you and I, we're going to change that, Hillary. Yes, <laughs> I hope so. Definitely. <gasps> I hope so. Definitely. Um, I hope so. I mean, I mean this, this writing this book and sort of discovering this whole world has been so wonderful for me. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't necessarily set out to get to know the autistic community but I just have through the book and it's been amazing. I, I just feel like I've learned so much all the time. It's overwhelming, Hillary. Yeah. I mean, who knows, well, there's, who knows yeah. that all these people? Well, that's a, that's I'm a in thing. the same it's situation. Like, I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's any other autistics out in the world. 
oh my god <laughs> it's like it's like this giant plant that's like growing and blooming a mile a minute you know it's like, exactly it's huge right. i belong to all these facebook groups for autistic people and every day every day five six seven people coming in going uh i think i'm autistic is anybody <laughs> and everybody going welcome welcome here's some reasons yeah. and you know everybody being super sweet if you're in an autistic group and they're not treating you that way get out get out of that autistic group listener there are lots there are lots of great ones <laughs> lots of really great ones yeah i'm not i'm not in any groups i just follow follow bloggers and follow people on twitter and yeah yeah I, yeah I don't but um yeah but i wonder i mean i don't know what iris's relationship is going to be and what her final diagnosis is going to be but i love the thought that as she gets older um, and wants to decide that she wants to assume whatever identity she wants to assume that there, there'll be a whole welcoming world out there. Oh, really most definitely. You know? Not only that, Hillary, you have nothing to worry about with her. Oh yeah, I don't think I don't think so at all. We can, she doesn't shut up now. We, she doesn't. She is not yeah, naughty yeah. anymore. She's great. It just it's interesting too when you look at the literature about um, the neurodiverse literature for young people. Mm -hmm. When like for young kids and through middle grade, there's no labeling or naming of anything. It's just like the kid is different in these different ways. And you just, you might, as a more sophisticated reader, guess that they're artistic, but they never say it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's more about just until we know what people have, we just, we want to be inclusive. And then as they get to be, you get into young adult literature, which is what my book is, suddenly kids get, or not suddenly, but kids grow into more of an interest in their identity and in claiming an identity and figuring out what it is and talking about it and finding a vocabulary for it. So there's this sort of, there's this real shift mm -hmm. from just like this sort of beautiful, we all belong in the world together to like, wait a second, who are we? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's, it's totally like age appropriate shift. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that, that will happen for her when she gets older. Like we don't know what, what she's going to become and she's going right. to figure it out and she'll have the language for it because the language is now out there. Oh, absolutely. And we all go through that identity phase as teenagers right? where we and, pick a type of music. That's our music right. style of clothing that then we never change. Even right. <laughs> I'm still wearing hippie clothes. I'm 58. You know? That's the style I picked on in, you know, 1975. And, <laughs> and it's come back a few times, right? A few times. It cycles around. I've got a lot of velvet in my closet. and That's awesome. <laughs> if I got to wear my cape, I got to wear my cape. And that's how life goes. So, yeah, I think we all go through that phase, and we also go through a phase where sometimes we reject an identity, and, right. and we come back around sometimes and, and pick that back up. We go, oh, well, maybe, maybe I really am that, actually. Right. <laughs> Let's see, Hillary. Is there anything about the book, about or about your experience that we didn't cover that you want to talk about? No, I just wanted to thank you for shining your light on it so thoughtfully and with such so much emotion and so much understanding and caring. It means it's so moving to a writer to feel like her book has come alive in somebody's mind, especially somebody who I have so much. Into, I mean, it, it's, it's in moving in different ways. It's moving when a stranger reaches out to you and you've really touched them, but someone who I have so much shared history with and who can understand all the different strands of inspiration for the novel. Um, it really means a lot that you sort of took the time to, to read it and think about it and talk to me about it. And, and also that it, resonated so deeply with who you are so 
I mean, did and didn't. It's so, it's just so it's so cool. It's so it's like profoundly interesting to talk to you about it. So thank you. Oh, honey, all yeah. I could do when I when I read the end of it was cry, and oh. and I, I'll admit I almost like I was like, oh, Hillary, oh, oh, don't make this sad, don't make this sad. And, <laughs> Goodness, it was close, but um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book, Hillary. And I feel the opposite way. I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I've watched you from afar, and you're published author now twice. And I thought, oh, Hillary's accomplished so much, and I'm just this middle-aged lady recording a podcast. No, oh my god. <laughs> And she's taking time out of her incredibly busy, exciting life. No. I am so honored and I'm just so happy. Like, (laughs) and I feel like it would mean, I know I would mean so much. I mean, your mom has been incredibly supportive and I know my mom would if she could. So it just means feel like it would mean so much to them that we're friends. (laughs) I, I know. I know. Right? Absolutely. And Hillary's mom, she has dementia now, is that? Yeah, she has Alzheimer's, yeah. She has Alzheimer's. Yeah. Yeah. I I just love her so much. Well, she was at my last wedding. There was a trampoline in the front yard. Uh And I wish I had pictures. It was before cell phones. Did she jump on it? <laughs> her, her and my mom were jumping on the trampoline, holding oh hands. Oh, cute. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then and they've later. They've known each other since they were little girls. And my mom said that your mom was the smartest person she'd ever met. I, well, I, I know that feeling was mutual. And <laughs> My only kind of complaint, if it is a complaint, is that I had an unrealistic expectation of friendships. <laughs> <laughs> From their friendship. <laughs> and your mom has been incredible to my mom through the dementia because she she still goes to see her and she yeah. and and when and I think even it's maybe less important now because my mom can't really recognize people anymore, but mm. when she was really terrified because she was sort of semi-aware that she was losing her mind that's when your mom was amazing because your mom was so reassuring and so patient and so kind and she never got frustrated and she never snapped at her and she never got freaked out I'm sure it was so hard for your mother to lose a friend but your mother didn't make it about her she made it about taking care of my mom and making my mom feel comfortable and not scared so I just, I was so, I mean, talk about empathy and talk about not being selfish, you know, because oh. I think it's really, when you, when you lose an old friend, a lot, it's you're like the instinctive feeling is, oh God, this terrible thing is happening to me. And your mom never, never did that. She only looked out outward and in the kindest, most beautiful way. So I, I will always remember that. You know, they were like sisters, but closer, I think, than Because when you choose a sister, that's really different than when you just get handed one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, yeah. Yeah. It's a a long and deep connection. And... Oh, we're just going to. And it's, and it sort of translates over like your mom, she reads all my books. She comes to my events. Like, oh she's, yeah. Oh yeah. She's so cute. She's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure like my mom was with you until she, until she couldn't be anymore. You know, that same feeling of like, we've got lots of mothers, which is, you can oh. never have two mothers, right? Yeah. No, she, <sighs> She was always there for me and never judgmental. Yeah. Never, ever. Not a judgmental person. Not at all. I never, and you know, some of my mother's friends have been kind of judgy. I mean, people are just judgy. I'm judgy. Right. <laughs> We're all judgy, right? They're, but our moms are. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Your mom just super accepting and a total inspiration to me as an artist 
And she made that a amazing school that changed so many lives. Many lives. So before we go, is there anything that you'd like to say to anybody listening? There's someone who has always encouraged me, and that's my sister. Yeah. My sister Eleanor. Oh, Eleanor. She is the most, she is the most optimistic, sweetest like, person. She's like hope in a bottle. Like and she is just like like she has that non-judgmental thing that my mom has and that positive energy. And the whole time, as soon as I gave her just even, I gave her the first couple of chapters of the book Mm. and she just said to me, I love Martin. I love Martin so much. I have to know what happens to Martin. Like (laughs) he was immediately a person for her. He Uh was immediately someone that she believed in. Uh She believed in all the characters. She was completely invested in them. And like her, her sort of feeling or her communicating to me that these were all real people and that their fate needed to unfold and that she could not like it had to happen (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that that gave me so much courage to keep Mm -hmm. going and was so much the impetus for my writing and so um I did dedicate the book to her but I just want her to know that I don't that she was really really instrumental in my like believing from the very moment that I had that I got this kid's voice in my head that he was a real kid and that he was going to have a life and he was going to have a book and go on to be in lots of other people's heads. Mm-hmm. So she's like, you know, his one of, one of his other creators. So I just want well, to say thank you to Eleanor. <laughs> we love you, Eleanor. <laughs> Eleanor. And I agree. I, um, yeah, I, I have a little bit of synesthesia and so I get kind of things in my head and whenever I see Eleanor or hear Eleanor's name all I can think of is strawberries I don't know why (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to tell her that (laughs) the podcast Oh, Hillary, I love you so much. I love you too. Thank you so much. This has been so great. Yay. Okay, lots of love to you and your family. You too. Okay. Okay. Love you. Bye. Bye, Rachel. Love you. Bye. Bye, baby. Bye.